If you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We have been in this chapter for several weeks now, and last week, Joel spoke to us about how God views um, various things like singleness and marriage and divorce. And for this morning's message, we are going to return to the topic of singleness. And we're going to talk about um, the unmarried life that Joel introduced last week, and we're going to speak to it in greater detail. And now in doing so, we're, we're actually going to skip over verses 17 through 24, which, which would have been our text for this morning. And we're going to jump ahead a few verses to verse 25, where Paul gives further teaching on the unmarried life. Now, this is not the normal pattern for us. Uh, our normal pattern is to, is to teach straight through books of the Bible, verse by verse. Uh, but the reason we're jumping ahead here is that Joel, who, who was going to be preaching on verses 17 through 24, uh, is needing to somewhat last minute go to his dad's church in Pennsylvania. Um, many of you know this, but Joel Shorey's dad, Tim Shorey, who is a pastor of that church, has been diagnosed with stage four cancer. So because of this, he's, he's been needing to pull back from some of his responsibilities in the church. And so, so Joel's actually at that church this morning preaching, caring for his dad and, and his dad's wife, Gaylene, and, and for that church as a whole. Um, and so... This morning, I'm going to be preaching the text that I was going to be preaching next week, and then the following week, Joel's going to be back, and he's going to be preaching uh, the text that was for this morning. But before we move on here into this text, I want to encourage us as a church to be praying for the whole Shory family, for Tim and Gaylene, and for Joel and Ashley as well, as they are going to be caring for Tim and Gaylene in the months to come. And actually, I'd like to, I'd like to just pause right now and ask you to join me as we lift up the Shory family. Lord, we come before you this morning, and we just lift the Shorey family up to you, particularly Tim and Gaylene, and for Joel as he is at that church caring for them this morning, um, as we were praying even earlier this morning. Uh, I just ask that this morning, particularly for Tim and Gaylene, would be a time of refreshment. Um, would you work by your spirit, even right now, as you're working in our church, in that church as well, to strengthen and to encourage Tim and Gaylene. Be with Joel as he, as he preaches, strengthen him for that task. Uh, and Lord, we just ask that you would, even this morning, bring comfort and strength to Tim. And we do also ask, Lord, that you would be mighty to heal Tim. We know that you are able to do that. We know that you are able to fully heal Tim, to take away this cancer, and to bring himself back to complete health. And we ask that you would do this, Lord. In the midst of all this, we just ask that you would sustain his joy and his peace and his strength and his confidence in you. That's your son's name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for praying with me, church. Continue to pray for them if you would. Okay, if you have your Bibles, again, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll be reading verses 25 through 40. And if you don't have your Bibles, uh, the text will be on the screen above me and you can read along in that way. But 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 through 40. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. This is what I mean, brothers. 
The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. And the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to praise the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if this, his passions are strong and has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under under control and has determined in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to remarry whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. I think that all of us can remember gifts that we have been given in the past that we really did not have a desire for. Think of a a Christmas or a birthday where you were given that that cheap piece of jewelry or a vacuum cleaner by your husband or or a a book that you already owned, right? And uh, it's kind of that awkward moment where you, you have to pretend to be excited about this gift that you do not desire and that you'll be returning as quickly as possible, right? Well, for me, some of you know this about me, but I have been on the receiving end of a gift like this for the past 30 years or so. And that is the gift of turtles. Let me explain myself. I'm not quite sure how this happened, but a long time ago, my family got it in their minds that I really, really like turtles. And so for the past 30 years of Christmases and birthdays, I've been getting turtles from various family members. Not real turtles, at least not normally, but, but toy turtles, model turtles, cur- turtle keychains, things like that. And I guess back when I was 10 or so, I thought turtles were really cool, but I am now a, a fully grown adult. And I do not really like turtles that much anymore. I was, I was driving down the road the other day and I, I saw a turtle on the side of the road and uh, I just kept driving, right? I, I didn't stop to see if it was okay. I didn't add it to my collection. I just kept on going because it's just a turtle. I did not give it a second thought. But, but multiple times every year, without fail, I'm given this gift again and again and again. And it, it started originally with my family, but now it, it spread somehow to my friends. And now various friends are giving me turtle-related gifts. And, and of course, you, you have to pretend like you like it, right? You, you say, oh, this is so great. This is so unlike the other 2,000 turtles that I have been given. But it's not. It's just like all the rest. 
but you have to be gracious with unwanted gifts, right? You have to pretend that you don't mind that you are a fully established adult and you are still getting turtle socks and turtle keychains and turtle candies. I do actually like the turtle candies. Those are okay. But, but I don't really like turtles anymore. And every year, another birthday, another Christmas comes along, and I think to myself, great. Another year of the gift of turtles. Now, friends, I bring this up for a couple of reasons. One, this is a kind of a public outcry to anyone in my family who might hear this message one day to stop buying me turtle gifts. But, but the real reason I bring it up is, is our topic this morning is on the unmarried life. And Joel introduced this topic last week by referencing verse 7, where Paul says that he considers his life as a single man to be a wonderful gift from the Lord, to be celebrated to be valued and even to be desired as a gift from God to be used for much good. But similar to the thousands of turtles that I have received over the years, the, the idea of singleness in adulthood is often thought of and, and as it is experienced as something that is to be avoided or to be, or to be graduated out of, right? Or something that, that lacks purpose and meaning and joy. And as much as Paul throughout this chapter speaks repeatedly to the benefits of the unmarried life, we're not quite sure we are convinced about those benefits. In the end, we, we might not really be convinced and it doesn't really feel like a gift, right? And either way, we are hoping that we aren't the ones to receive it. But my hope for this morning, one of my hopes for this morning, is our eyes are going to be opened up to what God says about the very real value of the single life and the purpose and the joy that can be found in it. But my real hope this morning is much more than this. My hope this morning is that this passage in God's word and, and Paul's example to us is going to cause us to know and to experience Christ as the most satisfying reality in the universe. You might think that might be a lot to ask. I have a message on the unmarried life, but I do believe that that is why Paul has written this text to us. Here's the main idea of our message this morning. The unmarried life provides a unique opportunity to advance the gospel and display the sufficiency of Christ. The unmarried life provides a unique opportunity to advance the gospel and display the sufficiency of Christ. And we're going to look at this main idea by, by examining two points. First, we're going to look at the redemption of the single life, and we're going to look at the validation of the single life. So first, the redemption of the single life. Before we look more closely at our passage in 1 Corinthians, I, I want to take a quick look at how marriage and singleness are spoken of throughout the entirety of the Bible. Now, in order to do this fully, it would obviously require a lot more time than I have this morning, but I believe it's important for us, as we begin here, to, to briefly consider this, because Paul is going to say some extraordinary things about the single life in our text this morning. In verse 7, Paul says, who, Paul, who, who's a single man and who is ambitious to remain single, says, I wish that all were as I myself am. And then in verse 26, he says, it is good for a person to remain as he is, or single. In verse 38, he says that the one who marries does well, and the one who refrains from marriage will do even better. And in verse 39, Paul says that the woman whose husband has died is free to remarry, but then in verse 40, he says, in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. 
Now, at first glance, these statements sound strange to us. And it may even seem to contradict our own experiences and so many ways that marriage and, scripture, and, marriage and singleness are spoken about throughout the rest of Scripture. All throughout the Bible, marriage is spoken of as a wonderful gift and a beautiful thing. And in contrast to this, oftentimes, particularly in the Old Testament, we see stories that are, that are filled with sorrows of the unmarried life. And so how, how do we make sense of what Paul is saying in this chapter in light of all of that. What I want to do here is I want to begin by doing just a, a quick theology of singleness. And I, I want to show how the single life fits into the story of Scripture. And ultimately, how Christ and how His gospel, which is the true theme of the Bible, brings great value and purpose and joy to the unmarried life. So what I want to do is I want to go all the way back now, even to the book of Genesis, where God creates humanity, and he begins to define his purposes for us as his people. In chapter 1, the the opening chapter of the Bible, God says this, Let us make man in our own image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. When God created Adam and Eve in his own image, One of the things that this means is that God has given us the task of representing him on this earth. We are here to make his glory known by living and ruling as he commands us to do. They were to make his glory known by representing him well in this world, by loving as God loves, by serving as God serves. And however, God's plan for Adam and Eve was, was, was not to represent him on their own. He wanted a world that was filled with his image. So, so he gives this command in the very next verse. In verse 28, he says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. God wanted a world filled with people, enjoying him, worshiping him, filling the earth with his glory, and, and procreation and marriage were the means by which God had desired for this to happen. And so this was, this was a large part of what God had designed from the very beginning. And so immediately, in the very opening chapter of the Bible, we see a potential problem for the unmarried life, right? If, it, if, God's, this, if this was God's plan for filling the earth with his glory, then, then how does singleness fit into that plan? And this problem seems to actually only get bigger because after, after Adam and Eve disobeyed God and brought sin and death and the curse into the world, God's plan to redeem this world also seemed to revolve around marriage and procreation. After the fall, God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, but, but not before he gives them this hope of redemption. When God cursed Satan for his part in the fall, God says this to him. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This verse is talking about Jesus. In this verse, we see the very first glimpse of the gospel. That The hope here is that through the family line of Adam and Eve, that a Messiah is going to come who is going to reverse the curse and restore humanity to their, to their right relationship with God. And so throughout the Old Testament, there's this, there's this continually looking forward to that day. 
This is a, a key theme throughout scriptures. And so marriage and family and procreation and the, and the growing of the nation of Israel, that was the priority for God's people in the Old Testament. And because of this, so much of the storyline and the drama that we see in the Bible has to do with marriage and producing children. It's almost on every page of the Old Testament. And not, not that this was the main theme of the Old Testament, but it was a big deal. It was a very real part of God's redemptive plan for his people. And so much so that things like singleness or, or barrenness were sorrowful things and were often seen as curses. And you have stories like in the book of Ruth where, where Naomi's widowhood and Ruth's singleness, it, it was the opening tragedy of the book. And, and the, the story's redemption is found through Ruth's marriage to Boaz because that marriage is going to create a family line that's going to result in blessing for God's people in the years to come. And to make it worse, then you have a book like Ruth, then you have a book like the Song of Solomon, which is, as Joel spoke about last week, it's its entire book dedicated to the celebration and the joys and the pleasures of marriage, right? So, so throughout the Old Testament, marriage and procreation are celebrated in a big way, because that is the way that God's people participated in his plan for them. Because God was building the physical nation of Israel. And through their offspring was going to come one day the Messiah, who was going to bring salvation to the whole world. This is the main theme and the hope of the Old Testament. And because of that, singleness was experienced often by God's people as a great sorrow and something to be redeemed out of. But the coming of Christ in the New Testament changed everything. Because now, the hero and the hope that God's people have been longing for has finally come. God's plan for redemption has been accomplished the Savior that the Old Testament was, was looking for is not something that we look for anymore. We have him, right? Jesus has defeated sin and death and Satan. He has redeemed his church. And in doing so, he has, he has reoriented the purpose of the Christian life. And he has redeemed singleness. In the Old Testament, in a big way, God's people participate in his plan for them through, again, that investing in the family and the nation of Israel, but now, God's people participate in God's plan through the proclaiming of the gospel and the building of the church. We see this clearly in Matthew 28 when, when Jesus gives that great commission to his followers. Go into all the world, proclaim the gospel, make disciples. We now find our meaning and we fulfill our purpose in, in, in spreading the image of God through the world by enjoying and proclaiming Christ. That is what is primary in the New Testament. It's investing in the spiritual family of God as we advance the gospel. Jesus, who was a single man himself, has redeemed the unmarried life. And so people like Paul and John the Baptist and single men and women throughout church history have joy and purpose, as do all believers. And in the New Testament, there are certain ways in which singles are spoken of as having these things in even greater ways. This is why Paul can write 1 Corinthians 1.7. This is why Paul can say things that he does. It's a beautiful chapter that affirms the single life that Christ has made possible. 
And so what we're going to do is we're, we're going to turn now our attention to our text this morning, and we're going to look more closely at how God calls us to value the single life and how he envisions us to find joy in it. So point two, the validation of the single life. Paul begins this section with an encouragement to the unmarried. He says in verses 25 through 26, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Now when Paul says concerning the betrothed, there's, there's lots of discussion in the commentaries as to what exactly Paul means here. The word betrothed can also be translated to mean virgin, and so some suggest that Paul is simply speaking to those who have not been married. But others suggest that Paul is speaking to those who are in some type of an engagement, um, perhaps by the encouragement of their families as they are being encouraged to pursue marriage. And it's not entirely clear, but, but what is clear is that Paul is speaking to believers in the church who are considering the possibility of marriage in the future, and he says... It would be good for you to remain considering the possibility of singleness. Now let's be honest. That sounds a little strange to us, right? That is not a typical conversation that happens in the church, right? Usually if, if a guy or a lady starts to like somebody and then other people find out about it, that kind of creates a buzz in the church, right? We, we love talking about those things. We love seeing people fall in love and get married and start their lives together. We're, we're all about these things, right? But here comes Pastor Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, and he's like, hey, I have an idea. How about you just consider not getting married at all? And we're like, okay, Paul, like, you're kind of being a, a wet blanket here, right? Like, that's, that's not a normal response, right? And before I continue, I want to clarify that Paul loves marriage. He was not married himself, but he loves the institution of marriage, Earlier in this chapter, he's, he's encouraging couples to invest in their marriage and to enjoy their marriage. Paul also wrote Ephesians chapter 5, which, which talks to how, about how marriage is one of the greatest displays of the gospel. And then when a husband and a wife love one another, it is a, a demonstration of the love that exists between Christ and the church. So Paul is all about marriage. He says marriage is a wonderful thing. It's filled with purpose and joy. It is immensely pleasing to God and it should be pursued. But then in verse 26, Paul is just saying the same is true for the unmarried life. Marriage is a good thing and singleness is a good thing. Both can be lived out with joy and purpose and fruitfulness. And the rest of the chapter is Paul casting a vision for why this is true, specifically of the unmarried life. And he does so by saying something interesting in verse 26. He says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. So Paul says, it is good to be single. In fact, in some ways, it is even better to be single. And that is particularly true, he says, because of the present distress that we are in. Now again, commentaries have lots of different ideas about what Paul means by this present distress. Something that, that, some think that Paul is talking about a particular difficulty that the, the church in Corinth is going through at that time, whether that be persecution or, or economic difficulties in that city. Uh, and that could be true. Uh, but others believe that Paul is speaking more to the, the urgency that all Christians have as we live in the last days. 
You see, Paul's not talking about a, a specific instance in Corinth, but he's, he's talking about the situation that all of us as believers find ourselves in. And I think that latter view makes the most sense in light of what Paul says throughout the rest of the chapter. In verse 29, Paul says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. And then in verse 31, for the present form of this world is passing away. So here, Paul is encouraging the church in Corinth, but also us as a church today, to always be living in light of Christ's certain return, which could take place at any moment. This world is passing away, he says. We are living in the last days. And so that means that everything in this world, material possessions, our careers, your marriages, they are all temporary. And then it's eternity. And Paul has his hope and his priorities, not in this life, but in the life that is to come. He says, live this life as if you are living for the next one. And then he says something even more interesting. In verses 29 through 31, he says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as if they had no goods. And those who deal with this world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now what does that mean? Let those who have wives live as they had none. Let those who rejoice as though they are not rejoicing. Like what is Paul saying here? Is is he really telling husbands to leave their wives? Is he telling those who are happy to stop being happy? Like clearly no, that is not what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying here is that the things in this life are not the things that ultimately satisfy us. To help us think through this, imagine with me that you're you're traveling to your favorite vacation destination. This is the summer, right? So we've all got vacations planned, and you've you've got this awesome spot, and you have all these these plans while you're there, and you can't wait to get there, but but it's far away. It's it's a several-day drive to get there. And so you've rented a car, and you stop at hotels along the way, and and during your journey to vacation, uh, you have some good experiences, and you have some not-so-good experiences. You stop at a hotel, and it's got a pool and a hot tub, and so you spend a few hours enjoying that before you move on to the ultimate destination spot. Uh, But then you also have some difficult experiences. Say you're you're stopped at a gas station, and you get sideswiped by somebody pulling in, and so there's there's a big dent now in your rental car. And you didn't pay for that extra insurance they told you to. So now you have to pay for some of it yourself. And so, so that's kind of a bummer on your vacation. But, but in the end, it's not your car, right? You're, you're going to return it once you get to your destination. Right? The, the, good thing, the good things and the bad things that happen on the way to vacation are kind of tempered by the fact that they're temporary. And that, that the, the better thing has yet to come, right? So you, you don't cancel your vacation just to stay in the hotel pool the whole time, right? And, and, you, and your vacation is not ruined because your rental car now has a scratch in it. And that's, that's kind of what Paul is saying about the Christian life. He says that for those who are married, lives, live as if you are not married. Meaning that marriage is not ultimate. It's, it's momentary. It does not last forever. It is not the ultimate priority in life. Husbands and wives are not each other's first priority. Christ is. Marriage 
just like everything else, is meant to make much of Christ. And then Paul says, to those who are mourning, mourn as if you are not mourning. Rejoice as if you are not rejoicing. Meaning that, that as we experience pain and loss in this life, we are not incapacitated by it. We can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing because we have not lost Christ. And likewise, when we experience the best things in this life and we rejoice in those things, we remember that the, even the best things in this life are nothing compared to Christ. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And nothing gained and nothing lost changes the ultimate joy that we have in Christ. And that's the point that Paul is making here. Our hope is Christ. Our purpose is Christ. Our joy is Christ. And not the things of this world. And it's, and it's in this understanding that Paul speaks to the great value of the unmarried life. He explains how in, in some significant ways, the single life is better than marriage. He says in verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now again, Paul's not against marriage. He is for it. He is just saying that marriage comes with lots of responsibilities and difficulties. It comes with its own set of sorrows and distractions. And singleness provides a freedom from these things. It provides a, a unique opportunity to devote one's full time and attention to building the church, to growing in godliness, provides flexibility to study and to serve and to invest in those around you. And, and of course, the, the pursuit of those things should not stop just because you get married, right? That the point here is just that singleness can be a season of great value because of the unique opportunity it provides to pursue those things without the extra responsibilities and distractions of marriage and family. So far from it being something that we should look down upon, or, or is lacking value and purpose in life. The opposite is actually true. And as a church, we should rejoice in this. We should encourage this. If, if you have single friends, your, your first thought towards them should not be when will they get married, but how can I encourage them in their joy? How can I partnership with them in the advancement of the gospel? And if you're single, your purpose in life is not on hold. You, your singleness is, is not a, a holding pattern while you are awaiting a real purpose and meaning in life. Your singleness is not somehow a second class standing in God's kingdom. On the contrary, you are among the likes of Paul and Jesus and you are called and equipped to live radically for the glory of God. And there are ways in which your singleness is even more valuable to the church there are ways in which your singleness allows you to pursue holiness with even a greater intensity. There are ways in which your singleness can serve the mission of the church with even greater effectiveness. That's why Paul says it can be a better option to remain single. Now as we talk about these things, 
and as God's word speaks so ambitiously to these things, it is also important to, to note that, that Paul's excitement for these things does not discount the very real difficulties that can come in the single life. Just like the joy of marriage does not discount the very real difficulties that come along with marriage. Just like marriage, singleness comes with hardships and, and prolonged singleness can often compound these hardships. Because not everyone is like Paul, right? Not all singles have this ambition to remain unmarried. Many singles instead have this God-given desire to serve Christ in the context of marriage and family. And Paul says this is also good. But, but to have that desire while remaining in a season of singleness can be a very real struggle. This might be where you find yourself this morning. Maybe you're finding yourself single for longer than you had hoped for. Maybe you've been married in the past but are no longer now married. And maybe there are lots of lonely Friday nights. Maybe there's yet another wedding that you go to alone and then come back to an empty house. Maybe you're, you're longing for a family of your own, feeling the heartbreak of a lost spouse. Maybe you're experiencing the very real burden of parenting on your own without a partner. And church, the pain of these things can be very real. But friends, Jesus knows these sorrows. Hebrews 4.15 says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. And that truth applies fully to the difficulties of the single life. Jesus himself was a single man all the days of his life on this earth. He understands our needs. And he loves to draw near to us in our sorrows. But church, in drawing near, he provides very real purpose and joy in whatever season of life that we are in. For those of us who are single, there's a wonderful opportunity to show how Christ is the most satisfying thing. We do this by longing for Christ more than we long for marriage and family. We do this by placing our hope and our confidence in him more than we place our hope in a change in marital status. We do this by living the season of life that God has placed us in with ambition to make much of Jesus, to build his church, to advance his gospel. And if we live like this, Christ promises to be your satisfaction. And you will find that Christ is enough. See, if, if marriage and family and companionship, if, if these were the things that truly bring purpose and joy to our lives, then the single life would be a tragedy. But Christ has redeemed the single life. And he's done so by making all of life all about him and finding joy in him and partnering with him in the advancement of the gospel. That is what truly brings purpose and joy to our lives. And so singleness is not only not a tragedy, it can actually be a triumph of the gospel because the single life lived with ambition to glorify Christ can be a profound testimony to how he is the greatest good. And would that be the ambition of our lives? Married or unmarried, would our goal be to together make much of Christ? Amen.
Join me in prayer if you would.